You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Our great God, we do praise you and give you thanks for all that you have given to us. We thank you this morning for your mercy for uh, being one who communicates clearly with us. We thank you for your word. And as we seek to study it now, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear what your message is to us this morning, that we might be by your spirit opened to trust you and depend upon you, to believe in your goodness and mercy in greater ways. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the third week in our summer series, Pointing to the Promise, and we've been seeing through the Old Testament ways in which uh, God's uh, work through Jesus Christ is being pointed to, or where there are sign markers that are being uh, directing us to think forward in the story, uh, to see uh, not only how God's working the same way uh, way back then, but also pointing us to the full expression of what God wants to do through the work of Christ, renewing us and renewing all things. So this morning, we're studying the life of Joseph, and he points us to some amazing things, the promise of God's mercy. And that uh, promise meets us in the places of hardship, injustice, vindictiveness, and family dysfunction. These are places where life seems to be falling apart, but God is working for good towards the redemption of all things. So this text is a tiny part of a huge story. It starts in chapter 37 and runs all the way to chapter 50. We're reading chapter 50 this morning, verses 15 to 21. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible or if you have an app that you want to try to follow along, I'll try to do my best to tell you where we are in the story of those 13 chapters. Um, but I advise it to you as the, um, something you might want to read about, uh, read through again later. Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. This verse 20, you intended it, uh, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, expresses the idea of providence. Providence is what this passage is all about. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, tells us a little definition for what providence is. It says, providence is God's completely holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing every creature and every action. 
It's a pretty big mouthful. Perhaps you know it better this way from Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It's a pretty challenging idea to believe, particularly when we're in a difficult place. In the uh, long struggle of life, uh, we get to the place where we might end up wanting to agree with what our culture would probably say about that idea, which is if God's in charge of everything, he must be incompetent. Well, we're going to be hopefully getting some help from the story of Joseph today to hopefully believe more strongly, more strenuously that this idea of providence, that God's mercy is working through and in even difficult circumstances to produce good things. It's the mercy of God that transforms Joseph. It's the mercy of God that transforms, transforms us into people of depth, of hope, of integrity. And the good news of the gospel is that throughout Scripture, uh, the idea that is presented to us is that it's not just up to us to sort of gut out and work up some kind of strong commitment to this idea that God is working for the good in the face of all the difficulties that we face, because God is actually working before us. He's working in those circumstances to help produce, to help undergird, to help supply endurance, to help provide direction that we might trust his mercy more deeply and be reshaped into people who live new lives, lives that God will use. So this morning, we're going to look at three things uh, to try to uh, unfold this story a little bit. First, we'll look at the setting for God's mercy. Then we'll talk about the working of God's mercy. And last, the fulfillment of God's mercy. So first, let's look at this idea that the setting for God's mercy is the place of suffering, the place of hardship, the place of difficulty, the place of family dysfunction. God's mercy shows up in our experience of human brokenness. And that's not always the first place we would go to say that's where God's mercy is going to show up. But this story really proclaims it boldly. Some of those places are places that uh, we create our own problem, our own mess, and other places are uh, experiences where we're receiving uh, hardship because of other people's choices and other people's um, actions. Or sometimes it's just the situation that God provides for us. But this story of Joseph shows us God's mercy showing up amidst messed up family relationships, bad intentions and actions and injustice. From start to finish, this story is one of family dysfunction. Jacob brings uh, some of his family dif- dysfunction forward into his family. We talked about Jacob last week, and he had plenty of family dysfunction with enmity between he and his brother that lasted 20-some years. He made it, uh, Joseph, Jacob made it very obvious because he favored uh, Joseph over the 10 brothers who were older than than Joseph. And he made it very clear every single day because he gave Joseph this coat. It was a coat of bright colors, and uh, the best way to understand it is sort of a, it's a rich person's coat. It's somebody who's highly favored, perhaps even uh, kind of giving the dignity of royalty. That's the kind of coat Joseph wore, and every single day that his brothers saw it, it reminded them 
dad likes him better than us. And by his own foolish choice, Joseph made things worse. He used his favor with his father to get his brothers in trouble. So one day they're out in the fields and he notices something and he comes back and gives what the text calls a bad report to Jacob. And a bad report is something that contains some truth, but it also leads to a bad result. And it's not the full story. It's kind of like one sibling telling on the other one, mom, Johnny hit me. Well, uh, Johnny gets in trouble, but the fact is that the underlying story is that the other brother had been irritating him all day long, and uh, he kind of asked for it. That's kind of the situation that Joseph's in here. Um, He gets his brothers in trouble, and the bad report causes them, as uh, Genesis 37, 4 says, to hate him so much that they could not speak to him peacefully. Just think about that a moment. They can't even talk to him without some fight breaking out, with some angry interaction taking place. That's how bad Joseph's situation is. And he he doesn't get how bad it is because the next thing he does in the story is that he tells his brother this dream that God gave him that his brothers would bow down to him. You can sort of assume how well that went over. Verse 8 of chapter 37 says, "'They hated him all the more because of his dreams and because of his words.'" And Joseph, showing a narcissistic pride, doubles down by telling them a second dream that God had given them, where the sun, the moon, and the stars are bowing down to Joseph. And if that wasn't enough, um, his parents are now incredulous, credulous, and his brother's jealousy and hatred grew to the point where they wanted to kill him. So the next part of the story is that, uh, sure enough, they plot the next occasion they have Joseph is sent by his dad to meet his brothers out in the pasture, and the brothers plot to kill him. The idea is we're going to kill him and throw him in this pit and go back and uh, tell dad that some beast ate him. And it's only at the assistance of the older brother, Reuben, that they relent. But they still treat him incredibly roughly. They, They strip him of his clothes and hurl him into the pit. And the language of the words there indicates really vital, violent, brutal treatment ripping off all his clothes, throwing him in the pit like he's a dead man. The only difference between what they did now is that he's still alive with the original plot. And later, Judah sees the opportunity to solve this dilemma to get rid of Joseph forever by selling him into slavery as he sees a path, a group of caravan traders going to Egypt. So in chapter 39, the traders sell Joseph to, uh, into slavery, into the house of Potiphar, who was an influential person in Egypt. And just as things seem to be getting a little bit better uh, as he's a slave in this great man's house, uh, getting uh, promoted, something takes place which takes the story in another bad turn. Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph, tries to get him to have an affair with her. And after repeated attempts to refuse the temptation, uh, Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely, and he's thrown in prison. Could have been killed for it, but he gets thrown in prison. You get the picture? This is the setting for God's mercy. It's horrible family relationships. It's incredible injustice. It is in the places of hardship and suffering that God's purposes begin to be worked out in Jacob, uh, in Joseph, and in um, the story. Question we'd ask ourselves today is this part of our theology? 
that God works in those painful, horrendous types of situations, that he's working good in the midst of those things, that's a really hard thing to conclude, isn't it? After all, difficult circumstances could easily produce the opposite result than good, right? We expect that awful things are going to produce nothing uh, with calamity after calamity. I mean, Joseph could have ended up a bitter, cynical, angry person. He could have decided in looking at his life and the way it was unfolding that the dreams God had given him were just a joke. They were a horrible joke. And he could conclude that God was just a farce, that believing in him was just a farce. Could have concluded that God was absolutely against him. He could have abandoned his faith and become an unbeliever. Isn't that sort of the trajectory things are on? But something was at work. Somehow God's mercy takes, is at work in the midst of those horrific situations. And rather than that, Joseph became convinced that God was working for his good. That's where he ends up in the passage we just read. So let's look further at the story because it's hard to grab. How in the world is God's mercy at work in these awful situations? Well, let's explore that a little bit. God's mercy works through convincing us that we need to change, that our circumstances require relief. In many ways, God uses those things to convince us of our deep need to depend upon God, to cry out for his mercy, to look for him, to him for help. It's in the midst of those places of trouble that many of us have experienced the advance of our faith and the deepening of our conviction that God is there and he's merciful and good. How did he do that in this story? Well, God was mercifully working to convince Joseph of his need for change. And he helped provide an abundant amount of time for him to reflect on that, to see and feel the pain of his pride and his arrogance and his poor ability to relate. Think about the experience of Joseph, helpless, listening to his brothers plot to kill him at the bottom of a pit. He had to sit there for hours listening to that, to their hatred and their disgust of him as they repeatedly considered how to kill him or to leave him to die. God's mercy is working to show him his poverty and how he had related to them. And after he sold, he had countless hours on that journey to Egypt, in Potiphar's house doing menial jobs, in the prison, again, with much, much time on his hands to contemplate what had gone wrong. He had solitude in a foreign land amongst strangers, nobody really to talk with. Uh, to provide ample opportunity to reflect on his previous choices, to ask questions of God, to wrestle with, you gave me this dream, but look what's happened. God's mercy used those hardships to drive home lessons about poor choices and poor relationships. Think about how the position of being a slave would have worked on Joseph. He has to do what he's told, right? He has no control. He's doing... uh, You don't know how long he was in Potiphar's house, but initially he was doing menial jobs, right? You don't trust somebody that you don't really know as a slave to do anything great. So he's doing those uh, very menial duties as a slave. We can imagine uh, the way in which God used those menial days and hours of toil without choice to press humility into Joseph. And slavery was followed by unjust imprisonment. And for many, that would sort of be the 
the straw that breaks, breaks the camel's back, right? Um, just as things seem to be getting better at Potiphar's house, he's been getting a little more um, ability to, um, and freedom to manage the, the man's house. But all at once, that is dashed. That's enough to make him uh, immediately lose hope, uh, to be discouraged, to uh, even give up. And we, again, don't know the length of this imprisonment, but the harsh conditions and the setting were the setting for God's mercy to transform and perhaps reshape Joseph. Joseph's humbled position as a servant, now prisoner, continued to replace pride with humility. In some way, God is at work in the midst of these awful circumstances to bring Joseph through this journey to the place where he can say, as he says in chapter 50, God meant it for good. Another way that God is at work is that he's mercifully providing glimpses of his presence. Again, let's think back through the story. God first gave him dreams. Because of Joseph's choices initially, that only produces pain and and hardship in his family, more trouble in the family relationships. However, they were an undeniable message from God that he had been given of God's promise of something that God had told him would take place. And as Joseph wrestled through these years, whether they would ever be fulfilled, even in the darkest of times, it was an anchor, a place to continue to return to, at least to ask the question, God, what did you, why did you ever tell me that story? Why did you ever give me that dream? They were there as a, a way to return to a hope, a, an anchor of hope that God had given him in his life. A second way is that God had intervened in the circumstances The story is amazing in terms of how all these pieces uh, unfold. Joseph's life is hanging on an edge. He's ready to be killed by his brother. And it's only at the last moment that Reuben happens to come to accompany his brothers and intervenes by proposing a different plan. Let's at least not kill him. And then a caravan of travers just happened by at the right time during lunch to provide an alternative to killing Joseph. God used one brother's sense of guilt of the choice they were making, and the other to slow, to slow the momentum, and then the other to provide an alternative to killing. The traders took him to Egypt, and he just happened to be deposited into slavery by, in, with Potiphar, who's a captain of Pharaoh's court, of Pharaoh's bodyguard. He's an influential person who has many affairs at which uh, Joseph eventually begins to be able to manage uh, and it was the situation, God's mercy gave him the situation where he could give him a training course in leadership management. He would be sent to prison where others from the royal court would have been. Uh, if he'd not been in Potiphar's house, he'd been just a common slave, he probably would, would never have ended up there. And the fact that he was with those prisoners and had the occasion to interpret two of uh, Pharaoh's officers' dreams that the cupbearer remembers him and at the right opportune moment in Pharaoh's court to say, here's a guy you should get to interpret the dream you can't have interpreted. He could have had an awful slave owner, but instead one who looked at him and saw the gifts that he had and worked to advance him and to give him opportunity to use those gifts well in his household. Potiphar gave him a way to grow as a person in his leadership skills. A third way that God is showing up in this story, giving a glimpse of his good presence, is that the text over and over says that God blessed Joseph. 
And this is not a, a small thing. It's actually the key to the story. And it starts in Genesis 39 too. Uh, in Fair, in um, Potiphar's house, uh, it tells us that the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Then a, a verse later, his work is blessed because God is behind it. And so Potiphar um, notices his, his gifts and advances his role. So Genesis 39.3 says, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. God was moving in Joseph's efforts. The same occurred in prison. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Again, God is at work to bear fruit in Joseph's situation in a way that only God could provide to, in a sense, build hope in Joseph because of these successes, show him that he was favoring him as well as those that observed uh, jo Joseph's skills. Many of us have had this kind of experience. Uh, you probably had the times when you worked really hard and not much fruit came of it. You feel like you did something with excellence and it didn't pan out. So our situations aren't always uh, correlated with how hard we work. And you probably had the experience at times when, well, I didn't work that hard, but things turned out incredibly beautiful. Uh, God blessed the situation, and particularly for those who've had, uh, who, um, or those in faith, uh, we would affirm that those moments tell us very clearly that God is giving us favor and he's blessing us beyond our abilities, beyond our effort, beyond our excellence. Well, God was doing that with Joseph and it's something that he used to build hope and encouragement. The last little sign of God's good presence was that he was shaping Joseph's gifts for his later purposes. Both in Potiphar's house with the jailer, under really harsh circumstances, Joseph was getting good training in leadership management. Uh, both saw the capability, they saw God blessing him, and it gave Joseph the opportunity to learn and develop, to be able to manage complex things, which was gonna be called for um, as the story continues. God was working to show Joseph that he was with him, that he was after his good. He built places of encouragement and places of, of encouragement for him. So how do you look at the circumstances that are difficult in your own life? Do you have times where you see the glimpse of God's favor and his presence, where you are able to take time to reflect? Our culture is not really gonna help us with this. We're not gonna get help from um, those around us, generally speaking. Uh, our culture is very cynical and unbelieving. Uh, our culture is very emotional and reactive, and so we react to negative circumstances very quickly to conclude things about it. But this Joseph story urges us to take time to reflect, just like Joseph had, uh, to take those moments to go back and review and to look for those signs of God's presence and his goodness to us, to look for his um, apparent presence and favor for us. So we've seen how God works in and through difficult circumstances, but there's more to the story, and that is this message of God's fulfillment of his purposes. His purpose of mercy is fulfilled in this story. God does what he said he will do. And the story of Joseph is utterly amazing in that respect. So let's first look at how God heals the family brokenness. As we've been talking we should be getting a picture of how awful their relationships were. 
not being able to actually even speak civilly to one another, total breakdown in relationship, fury with each other, ready to kill, the readiness to murder one another. That intensity of hatred is beyond belief. And here at the end of the story, the opportunity for payback is right there. Joseph is now the most powerful person inside Pharaoh in the world, and his brothers are at his mercy. This dream that he had early in his life could have been fulfilled with horror. They bow down and they um, end their life or they're in prison forever. I encourage you to, to read the story in chapters 42 through 50. We can't really delve into it, but I want to mention a couple of pieces from it that uh, reveal how amazing it is that God's mercy has taken hold in this family's life. Right early on in chapter 42, Joseph conceals who he is from his brothers as they come from famine-stricken Canaan to Egypt for food. He doesn't let them know who he is, but he, sets, he calls them spies and then sets up ways that could very well be the stage for judgment against his brothers. He plants stolen goods as they go back to Canaan without telling them. Easy fix to be able to go and arrest them for stealing from his court. He holds Simeon captive as leverage to bring his brother Benjamin back from Egypt. And this uh, time and time again, we see that these tests or these um, setting the stage for uh, pot potential judgment mirrors the brother's treatment of Joseph and sort of recreates the pain for both his brothers not knowing what's going to happen next, being at the mercy of someone else, uh, as well as creating pain between uh, the father who loves Benjamin, who used to love Joseph as his favorite, uh, to create pain in the family. All things are poised for judgment and to render uh, the judgment that his brothers should pay. But as the story is told, the verdict's not out and God is still working. Deep wounds take time to heal. And God is at work. And he uses these tests to soften both the brothers' heart, hearts as well as to soften Joseph's heart. As they face the ordeal of separation from the family, the brothers experience that pain of, jo of, of Jacob being parted from Joseph. And they experience it now with the idea of having to bring Benjamin back to Egypt and leave him apart from Joseph. They face their guilt afresh in terms of what they had done for Joseph. And in three waves, Joseph's heart softens. First, when the brothers return with Benjamin, the blessing of that reunion with his brother uh, by the same mother was so strong that he has to leave the room to weep. He is emotionally affected by that reunion in a way that changes him. The second wave comes as he plans to hold Benjamin after, again, another ploy to entrap him by planting a silver goblet in his bag so that he forces um, the arrest of Benjamin to be kept in Egypt while the brothers go back to bring their father back to Egypt. Judah is, uh, immediately jumps in and asserts himself and says, no, please don't do this. Keep me here. He substitutes himself for his brother, Benjamin. He says, keep me captive and don't do this to my father. Uh, the separation will move him to uh, die in sorrow. And this kindness, again, causes Joseph to uh, weep. He 
He's deeply moved by this action of, of substitution, this action of mercy that Judas now showing for his brother. And he has to then reveal his own identity. He's concealed it up to now. He's just overcome to the point where he now knows he has to um, tell them who he is. So the relationships are slowly but surely being restored. And the last step of healing from the brothers is here in this chapter 50. They come and they use, um, they're still using the family dysfunction. I hope you notice. <laughs> you know, our dead father told us that we were to come and ask you for forgiveness. <laughs> you have to forgive us, right? Because it's over his dead body. So they're using it, but they're still coming in contrition. And the fact that they come and say, please forgive us, and they mean it, and they bow down before Joseph. The dream is fulfilled, and his brothers are here, and the restoration of his family begins to be complete, and he's freed from all the, the animosity and anger, and every bit of the desire for revenge dissipates, and Joseph weeps again. Forgiveness happens for the family, and they are restored. An incredible grace the fulfillment of God's promise of mercy for Joseph and for his family to take broken family relationships and restore them. But there's more here in the story. Uh, we want to look at the fulfillment also of the promise that's given to Abraham in Genesis 12. God comes to Abram and he says, I want to bless you. I want to make you a great nation. And through you, I want to bless all the nations of the earth. God works that out through the life of Joseph. Joseph's gift to be able to receive and interpret dreams makes its way through to Pharaoh's court when he has a dream, nobody can tell him what it means. And so Joseph is brought and he interprets the dream to tell him your, your dream is one and the same. There are seven years that there are going to be great plenty and abundant harvest. And then there are going to be seven years of famine that follow. And he not only tells him the interpretation of the dream, but he goes on to explain that the meaning of the dream means you ought to do these, take these steps to ensure that this, does, uh, this tragedy of uh, the years of famine don't um, end up coming back on you. And so he tells them that they need a person who is wise and discerning, who is able to manage things and to store up for those seven years of, of great fruitfulness so that during the seven years of famine, there's food for everyone. God has groomed Joseph in this time, not only to interpret the dream, but to explain what is needed. And he's uh, immediately installed as the one who has the leadership, has the wisdom and the leadership gifts to uh, manage this um, seven years of famine that will follow. God ends up using what he's done to build this, uh, these gifts in Joseph to not only save the people of Israel, to uh, allow there to be a, a nation that continues, for if they had not come to Egypt, they would all have died in the famine. So God keeps his promise to Israel, and he brings them to Egypt so that they could flourish there, and the next hundreds of years are going to find in the story that God's people flourish and thrive in Egypt, and they become a mighty, great nation. So God fulfills his promise to Israel so that not only is Israel saved, but that that line of uh, the Messiah would be saved so that through Judah, there would come one uh, many years later who would save the whole world. 
So God saves the nations around them through Israel. He fulfills that promise in Genesis 12 through uh, Joseph's leadership, um, an Israelite who has ended up being the, the means through which the world is saved at that time. Joseph's description of God's providence in verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. That same framework is, uh, is picked up by Peter on Pentecost Sunday as he preaches to the multitude from many nations saying this, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. Joseph's salvation points to Jesus' salvation. Joseph went through rejection, was stripped, was roughly treated, humiliated, put into slavery and uh, prison so that he would rise to forgive his brothers, to uh, bring forth the line of the Messiah and to lead forth the effort that saves that known world from death. His story points to the promised one, who is Jesus. He too would be rejected, stripped, roughly treated, humiliated, and killed. And he too would rise to the place of authority and power to save, to bring, shed the mercy of God to all the nations of the earth, to deliver us from both sin and death. God's mercy is what we need. So as we conclude this morning, just to ask us to think through uh, these questions, what do we need to grasp that mercy, to be able to trust in God's promise? We've already suggested that we need time to be able to reflect and to see the ways in which God's mercy has been present in the stories of our own lives, ways in which he has been working through circumstances, working to work, his change agency in our lives to shape us and build us into the people that he wants us to be. And also to be um, those that would, uh, Joseph didn't have the luxury of having the fellowship of other believers around him to use that, the connections that we have one another. Many times we can't believe for ourselves, but by sharing our grief and sharing our struggle with others, we can depend on one another and help to lift one another up and carry one another's burdens. So would you this morning hear this call from this passage to believe in God's goodness, to trust in his providence, that he is after your good. And he will do that in the midst of pain and hardship and struggle. He will show himself to be present with you and he will build hope and endurance by your trust in him. Let's all look to him together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are the one who has conquered sin and death. You are the one who has endured hardship for us. You've entered into our pain and our struggle. And so we can trust you and we can depend upon you for our good. You've shown your goodness to us in him. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit's presence uh, to trust you, to be working all things together for good for us. We ask that you'd help to build trust and hope and keep anchoring us in the ways in which you've shown us your mercy and continue to trust and depend upon you. We look to you for all these things, asking in Jesus' name, amen.